I ask you to please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. And again, as I said to the kids, I'll be focusing on uh, Romans chapter 2, uh, verses 6 to 11. But I'm going to read all the way from, uh, from verse 1, verses 1 to 16 to set the context. And if I, my voice is starting to go a little bit, if somebody could get me a glass of water, please, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks, Ruthie. Thank you. <clears throat> Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who, who do such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and the penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, it will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Thank you. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of our Lord. May he rise eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray again together. Almighty and triune God, We bow in your holy presence. Lord, you are the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God. Lord, you are a just judge. Lord, you are a perfectly just judge, and you are a, the faithful God who will judge all deeds. Lord, we confess that, that we are so often hypocritical judges. So often we judge others by a standard that, that we do not live up to. As though we ourselves were somehow that standard and, and look down our noses at other people. Lord God, may we, may we see ourselves in light of who you are. May we see your perfect righteousness, your perfect righteous judgment, and may you help us, Lord, to, to withhold judgment. Leave judgment in your faithful hands. Lord, I pray that when we are mistreated, we will look to you, the just judge. I pray that, that when we seek the things that we're going to do in our life, that we will look to you, the just judge. I pray, Lord, that, that even when we look at our sin, we will look to you, the just judge. And 
And Lord, I pray that you would help us, all of us, to seek to establish righteousness not through our works, but through the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us by faith. And we pray, Lord, as those who are credited with the righteousness of Christ, that you will help us, Lord, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, that we will increasingly live lives that are characterized by repentance and faith in Christ. For we know one day, Lord God, that you will bring every deed into account, and we want to seek the reward that comes from your hand for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. You may have heard in the news that this past week, Ontario man Kenneth Law was charged with, first, with 14 counts of second-degree murder for his mail-order business sending suicide kits that led to the death of 14 people in Ontario. And this is in addition to the 14 counts of counseling or aiding suicide that were laid against him in August. Investigators believe that there were actually 1,200 packages that he sent to over 40 countries around the world. And as vile and as shocking as that is, what is even more vile and shocking is that any court in this country would presume to convict a man of second-degree murder given our country's policies regarding assisted suicide. Canada is one of the most flagrant peddlers of murder in the world. People with physical disabilities are routinely offered murder as a treatment option. In 2001, there were more than 10,000 Canadians murdered through assisted suicide, legal assisted suicide in this country. And with the inclusion last December of the offer of medically assisted suicide to those who are suffering mental illness, that number is going to increase dramatically. And this is a clear example of those who, in passing judgment on another, condemn themselves. But this is just one example of the hypocrisy of the judgment of man. It is also an example of man's partiality. Hypocrisy and partiality are not the limited domain of our legal system. Hypocrisy and partiality are in the heart of every man and every woman. But God's judgment, on the other hand, is perfectly righteous and perfectly impartial. Because of God's perfectly righteous and perfectly impartial justice, he would be perfectly just to condemn all people to hell for eternity. One day, every person who has ever lived will stand before the judgment seat of the holy, righteous God who will always judge rightly, verse 2, or as it is better translated, who judges according to, tr to truth. On that day, Judgment Day, every person's works will be revealed before the omniscient God. And every person's works will reveal the truth about how they've responded to God. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. What do your works say about you? In Romans 2, 6 to 11, the bad news continues. Paul is continuing to reveal the judgment of God. 
But thankfully, here we also get a glimpse of the good news. Paul shows us that it isn't all bad news. There is good news as well. There is gloriously good news. The good news that Paul proclaimed in his thesis statement in Romans 1, 16 and 17, which is really the, the, what Romans is all about. Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The revealing of the judgment of God reveals the grace and mercy of God in the gospel for believers. For the unbeliever, however, it reveals the wrath and fury of God for their rejection of God. On Judgment Day, when people's works are revealed, the reality of their relationship with God will be revealed and the judgment of God for that relationship will be revealed. God will impartially judge all people according to their works. Now, some of you may be saying here, well, hang on a second. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We aren't saved by works. And that's 100% right. If I preach other anything other than salvation by faith alone and Christ alone, then a few of the big guys in this church better rush up here, lift me up, and throw me out that door. What Paul is saying here and what I'm saying does not in any way contradict salvation by faith, by faith alone. Bear with me, and I trust that by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, I'll be able to make this clear. This passage in Romans 2, 6 to 11, is really the the central part of the subsection that goes from chapter 2, verse 1, down to verse 16, which is really the the central part of of Paul's larger argument that runs from 118 all the way to 320. That Jew and Gentile unbeliever alike are under the just judgment of God. Of God. I'll say that again. The larger section in 118 to 320 is that Jewish and Gentile unbeliever alike are under the just judgment of God. Paul was focusing on the sin of the Gentiles in chapter 1, 18 to 32, and then with chapter 2, he turns to focus on the Jews. Now, I'd recommend here as we, as we just look at, at, this, at this passage that you will follow along with, with me in your Bible. And if you, if you don't have your Bible with you, you can, you can use the Pew Bible in front of you. But if you can't see this visually, it's gonna be, it is, with the Bible in front of you, it's going to be hard for you to, to follow the structure of, of chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. But yeah, it's just, this is a plug here. It's really important for, for you to have your Bible with you at church and to keep it open on your lap while, while the word is proclaimed. Chapter 2, verses 6 to 11 is is arranged in what is called a chiastic pattern. Now, some of you are are familiar. We've we've talked about this before. Chiasm comes from the the Greek letter chi, which looks like the letter X. A chi, it's a different letter, but it looks like an X. And if you think about the letter X, if you think about the letter X as, as two arrows, one pointing up and one pointing down with a point in the center. 
And so chiasm is, is like two arrows that are pointing to a main point. And what you see is a repetition at the, the, the beginning and, the, and then the end. As the verse goes down and up, it's, it's repeated, and both the verses point towards the middle point. And the middle point in the chiasm is, is the main point that, that the author is trying to establish. And there is chiasm all over the place in the Bible. And if, if you learn to recognize that, it, it's, it's a helpful tool when you're, when you're doing Bible study. One short example is Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See the, see the repetition there. He starts, he starts with exalt, with is the one who exalts himself, that person will be humbled. Then he points to the humbling again, and then exaltation after that. So it's the main point is being humble before God. Now, usually, again, in chiasm, the, the main point is at the center. That's why I call, it's called chiasm. And so follow with me as we just look here at, at, at verses 6, 6 to 11. In verse 6, the main point here is that God will judge everyone righteously. And if you go down to verse 11, which it's paired with, God shows no partiality. And then, verse 7, those who seek God will receive eternal life. Pay with verse 10, all who do good will receive glory. And then verses 8 and 9 are paired, those who seek self will receive wrath. And verse 9, all who do evil will receive tribulation. And so in my, instead of the usual three-point sermon or four-point sermon, I'm going to structure my sermon to highlight this chiastic structure. With the six, and so the six verses are going to be my six points. But again, the key point is in verses 8 and 9 at the point of the X. Right? That, that all Jews and Gentiles who reject God are under the wrath of God. All unbelievers, Jew and Gentile, are under God's wrath. That's verses 8 and 9. And God's, so God's judgment is righteous and impartial towards everyone. That, that's Paul's larger point in this passage. So first of all, verse 6. God will judge everyone righteously. He begins, he will render, God will render to each one according to his works. Now there are three key truths in, the, in this verse. God will render judgment... God will render judgment on all, and God will render judgment on all for their week, for their works. So first of all, God will render judgment. For the reasons we're going to discuss a little later, this is not a, a, hypo, a hypothetical judgment. This is something that God will do. God must render judgment. God must render judgment because righteous judgment is is part of his attributes, is one of his attributes of God. So for God to do anything else than rendering righteous judgment, it would be contrary to his character. But God is the just judge. We need to recognize the fact that just because we don't necessarily see his response to sin does not mean he won't judge sin. And, and there's a comfort here to those who have been, have been abused and, and mistreated by others that we don't have to take matters into our own hands. 
We can remember, we can preach to ourselves that God is the just judge. I need to preach this to myself. I'm, many of you know this, that I'm particularly sensitive to perceived injustice, especially when it's perpetrated against me. My, my fleshly reaction when, when somebody treats me with injustice is to push back, to go Newton's laws on the person, an equal and opposite reaction, or sometimes more than equal reaction. But when I remember, when I preach to myself, God's word says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That, that's in, in Romans 12, and Lord willing, we'll get there in the next couple of years. But it, it, it's, a, it's a quote here from, from Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip away. For the day of calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. God will bring every deed into account on the day of judgment. We don't need to, to, to presume to be judges ourselves. We can leave it in God's faithful and just hands. You know, there's things that, that I wouldn't have done yesterday, probably today too, already, if, if, there, if I had remembered this and preached this to myself. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of children of man is fully set to do evil. And so the, the, the wicked become more and more high-handed in their rebellion as they don't get busted for the stuff they did. But we need to recognize that the same is, is, is true for, for believers, that God is going to render judgment to us as well. God is going to judge us as well. But that judgment will be well done, good and faithful servant. Praise God in every way for that fact, brother and sister, that the judgment on you is well done. Good and faithful servant. We're going to talk more about this in a moment. But, but that, is, that is God's judgment on you and me. Next, God will render judgment on all. He'll render judgment on each one. And again, from the context, you can see that Jew and Gentile are in view. So, so don't be tempted to think of this in, in merely abstract terms. Right? And this is where we get into the, into the hypothetical issue. Some commentators, say, when they read here, the, the verse saying that, that we'll be judged by our works, some commentators will say that's just merely hypothetical. Because, because they're thinking about Paul's bigger argument that, that salvation, it, it, again, it's by, by grace through faith, by, by faith in Christ alone, faith alone in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. That, that's really, that's true. But that doesn't mean that this is hypothetical. It's not, God is not hypothetically going to judge every individual. He will judge every individual. Every single person on the planet, every single person who ever lived on the planet will stand before God on Judgment Day. It's going to be truly the longest day 
Now, I don't know how that's going to work. But every single person, one-on-one, one man, one woman, before the one God. And on that day, you, you won't stand there with the Reformed Baptists. You, you won't stand there with, with the, the people of, of this church. You won't stand there with your family. You'll stand there alone. But it's the unbelievers who are truly alone on that day. C- could you just imagine for a moment on the day of judgment, for the unbeliever to look in the face of the almighty God that they have spurned with their whole lives. It'll be a moment of sheer terror. And a terror that that is, it's only just the beginning of that terror. That terror is going to continue for, for all eternity. It, it makes me it makes me literally shudder. As I was thinking about this again this morning, it was it actually made me feel sick in my stomach to, to think of, of my neighbors, my friends and family, people that, that I love and care for deeply, who are at this point still apart from Christ, that this will be them on that day. They'll be all alone, naked and exposed, every deed, past, present, and future, before the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. But brothers and sisters, for for us, for those who are trusting Christ, we will not be truly alone. Because our judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, is also our advocate and again, I don't know how that's going to look, but it's, it's the, verbally, he, he, he comes down from, from the bench and, and puts his arm around us and says, you belong to me. My righteousness is yours. Come and enter paradise and be with me forever. So God will render judgment. God will render judgment on all. And God will render judgment on all for their works. We spoke last time about verse 2, which the ESV translates, for the judgment of God rightly falls. But it's better translated, the, the judgment of God is according to truth. God will judge according to the reality of the situation. Every single deed will be judged. Every single deed must be judged. For the unbeliever, every single deed will be judged for all eternity. One sin would would be enough to cause you to deserve eternal punishment from God, but nobody's committed one sin. Everybody's committed far more than one sin every second for their entire lives. But praise God for the Christian, that judgment, the wrath of God for our sin was poured out on Christ in our place. 
Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are Christ Jesus. For the law, the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Death no longer has any hold on you because Christ died in your place. The eternal Son of God who took on human flesh, truly God, truly man, the, the sacrifice of infinite worth, died in your place. Experienced the wrath of God in your place. But rose again on the third day, victorious over sin and death and hell for you. There remains no more wrath of God on you because Christ has extinguished the wrath of God for you. But we also recognize that, that in the, the judgment seat of, of God, there, there is also a judgment for reward. Now, in this sense here, the, the judgment, the judgment is not punitive. Again, because the, right, the wrath of God has been poured out on Christ. But the, the, the judgment reveals who you really were, what, what, what you really, how you really lived and, and, and what, what you were like. Like I said to the kids, we, we know that they're human beings because of, of how, they, how they act as human beings and, and, and what they look like as, as human beings. But there's also a sense in which there will be reward for believers. Right? The crowns that we receive that we will cast at the feet of Christ because they're really his rewards. He is any work, any good work that we do, he's really done it in us and through us. We're his workmanship in Christ Jesus for the good works he's prepared in advance that we should walk in them. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we're all going to be before the, the judgment seat of Christ, but, but the, the judgment for our, for our sin was put on Christ. And so your deeds will, will be exposed, but it's, it's, it's for reward. And for the glory of God, as, as it's, it, everybody becomes aware of, of the fact of, of the, the mercy and the grace of God in saving you. Again, you probably might be thinking here, but salvation is by grace alone. I hope you're thinking about the fact that salvation is by grace alone, because it is. But remember, Paul's main focus at this point in his argument is to show how God's righteous judgment upon all is upon all believers, both Jew and Gentile. Unbelievers are under the judgment of God's wrath. But for the, again, for the believer, Christ received that judgment. He bore the wrath of God for our sins. And so we now bear the righteousness of Christ at the judgment seat of God. Listen to John Calvin. For the Lord, by visiting the wickedness of the reprobate with just vengeance, will recompense them, reward them, with what they have deserved. And as he sanctifies those whom he has previously resolved to glorify, you also crown their good works, but not on account of any merit. But it's not that you're getting something that, that, that you deserve. We get what Christ deserved. And he got what we deserve. 
So now let's see how Paul develops his point in, in verse 7. Again, that was just a short verse, but I'll go a little more quickly from here. Paul, first of all, deals with the deeds of believers in, in verse 7. Those who seek God will receive eternal life. The verse reads, For those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So what, what does he mean by patience and, and well-doing? It's, it's those who persevere, those who endure in doing good works. And it, it's those who seek glory. Now this is the, this is the glory that, that comes from God and is for God. Naturally, every person on the planet seeks glory, but naturally they seek glory for themselves. John 5, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And we'll talk about that more in a moment. But all the, the glory that, that, that we seek redounds back to God. 1 John 5, 8, by this my Father is glorified, sorry, this, sorry John 15, 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So, so the Father is glorified in the fruit that we produce. And our fruit, the way we live our lives, proves that we're truly disciples. And it's parallel with, with honor. In the, in the world, people demand to have honor from each other. And it, but if you don't honor me, then I will reject you. I want to preserve my rights. And that's worldly honor. It, it, but it really isn't wrong to seek honor. However, we should be seeking the honor that, that comes from God and is for God. This is the honor that comes through humility. I'm reminded that here of Luke 14. We're told when you go to a banquet, don't, don't assume that the seat of honor, but choose the lowest place and then your host will exalt you to a higher place. Now, this is not meant to be a strategy of getting the best seat in the house. Jesus here is speaking of, from, of the honor that comes from God for genuine humility, which we recognize is also a gift from God. Next, those who seek immortality, those who seek eternal life. Think here of the, the rich, young man, rich young ruler who asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man was, was self-righteous before Jesus, and he, he thought he'd fully obeyed the commandments. So Jesus told him, sell what you have and, and give it to the poor. And the man, man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. His, his money was an idol. He refused to come to God because he loved his treasure more than he loved God. He had not even kept the first commandment. And most people you talk to want eternal life. Again, you might meet a so-called atheist who will deny it, but they know it. That's what they're, why they're, they're trying to, to do good works or to try to justify themselves so they, they feel that they can, they can merit something on that day. But we know that we can only receive eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for our sins. So who does this? Who, who among you, can raise your hand, who among you who by patient well-doing seeks for glory and honor and immortality? 
Well, in a sense, no one. No one does this perfectly, not even close. It's, it's not just unbelievers who sin. Christians sin, sin as well. 1 Kings 8.46, there is no one who does not sin. In Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's a present tense verb. This is not just sin in the past. It's sin in the present as well. We continually sin. No one does this perfectly. Not even the Apostle Paul did this perfectly. He's going to go into great detail about this in Romans 7. He, he says in 1 Timothy 1.15, This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Jesus, the Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. But in this passage, Paul is not saying that it is those who do this perfectly who receive eternal life. Because if it is those who do this perfectly, who only who receive eternal life, then nobody will receive eternal life. Only Jesus Christ did this perfectly. But Paul is saying here that it's those who do this at all. So who does this? Brothers and sisters, you do. And I can bear testimony of that. I can bear testimony in pretty much the, the lives of every believer in this room of ways that you are, by God's grace, being patient in well-doing. That you are seeking the glory that comes from God for God, the honor that comes from God for God, the ways that you are seeking eternal life, immortality through God and for God. I see those things in you. Again, the only person who, who did this perfectly is Christ. So you are saved by works if you're truly saved, but by his works, not by your own. Again, his record is credited to your account. His perfect record of righteousness is yours through faith, and you prove it by living a life that is different from how you once lived. You live by faith, and by faith you live. That's another chiasm. And so here, when, when Paul is talking about, about the fruits and, and the things that, that are, are on evidence in, in the lives of believers, we, we see the truth of Matthew 6, 7, 7, 16. You will know them by their fruits. And Jesus goes into some detail on this in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. Matthew 25, 30, 31 to 46, I invite you to turn there with me. Jesus here is, is speaking of the final judgment. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will sit on his glorious throne. This is the, the judgment throne. And before we'll be gathered, we'll be gathered all nations. He will separate uh, from one from another, the, the shepherd separates sheep from, from goats. He's going to place the, the sheep on his right hand. He's going to place the goats on his left hand. And he says that, speaking first of all of the sheep, he says, when I was hungry, you, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me, and, and, and so on. He says, they ask, when did... When did we do this? And he said, whenever you did this to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he's going to say to those on the left, those who are the goats, 
depart from you, cursed from into the eternal life, or sorry, eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me, and so on. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The sheep who are on the, the, the right hand did not save themselves by being sheep. The, their sheepiness did not save them. They, they showed that they were sheep by the way they lived their lives. Likewise, the, the, the wicked were, were not condemned by their goatiness. They, they showed their goatiness in the, in the way that they did not serve God. They, it, they, were, they were condemned on the basis of their works, but their works just showed who they truly were as those who hated God. Likewise, the sheep will be welcomed to eternal life. Those who, because they love God, because you love God. You don't do it perfectly. Nobody does it perfectly. But you do because he has regenerated your heart. He's given you a new desires. And, and the God that you once hated, you now love. Weakly and, and pitifully at times, but you do. but he still judges you on the basis of the perfect love of Christ credited to your account. First Timothy 5.24, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others will appear later. All will be revealed on the day of judgment. And as men, we talked about this yesterday from James 2.24 in our hermeneutics class. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. If you take this out of context, it's, it's used as a proof text for the heresy of works-based salvation. But James here is not speaking of being justified in the legal sense that Paul is using it in Romans. James is speaking of how the, the works prove the reality of one's faith. Jesus speaks of wisdom in the same way in Luke 7.35. Wisdom is justified by her children. Wisdom is not pronounced not guilty by her children. Jesus is saying here that wisdom is proven to be wisdom by its fruit. Okay, again, moving more quickly now. Verse 8. Paul is moving here into the, the central part of this passage, verses 8 and 9. First of all, verse 8, those who seek self will receive wrath. The re verse reads, but, but for those who are self-seeking, you do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. Those who Paul was speaking of in verse 7 were seeking God. Those he is speaking of now are seeking self. Their lives are spent <clears throat> living for themselves. Again, if we're honest, we need to recognize that we all do that sometimes. Far too often. But as Christians, because of the new heart that we've been given, we, we recognize the, the, something greater than, than living for ourselves. We're, we're not content to live for ourselves. We want to live for Christ. So through the work of the Holy Spirit, we're, we're drawn ever Christward. We are seeking glory and honor and immortality from God for God, and we receive it from God for God. 
But unbelievers do not obey the truth. Every point of, of their, their lives, they are denying the truth. They're, again, this is a truth that is, is not hidden to, from them. We saw this very clearly in, in chapter 1 that everybody knows that God exists from creation. Everybody knows that, that there is judgment coming for, un, for, for unbelief and for rebellion. But these people consciously, willfully do not obey the truth. Instead, they obey unrighteousness and make themselves slaves to sin. Romans 6.16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But through Jesus Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. The chains have been broken. But those who are still slaves of sin do not receive eternal life. They receive the opposite of eternal life. They receive eternal death. They receive wrath and fury from God. We spoke about the wrath of God from, from uh, chapter 1, 18 to 32. Initially, he was Paul was speaking about the temporal wrath of God, the wrath of, of God that's on sinners now as he's given them over. And then in verse 32, he spoke of the, the wrath of, of God that will be poured out on the day of judgment. Upon all, upon all unbelievers. And that's what he's, what's in view here. The eschatological judgment of God. And when we looked at, at 1, 18 to 32, we, we considered several definitions of the wrath of God. But I think John Owens is, is the, the most comprehensive, at least of the ones that we looked at. John Owen defines God's wrath as a, const, a constant and immutable will in God of avenging and punishing by just punishment Every injury, transgression, transgression, and sin. Every transgression and sin upon and every person who is not in Christ. And this wrath will be poured out upon all unbelievers on judgment day and for the rest of eternity. We saw in verse 5 of chapter 2 that, that the wicked store up wrath in heaven like a miser stores up riches on earth. Again, this is terrifying. That unbelievers, with every act, with, with every breath, they're heaping up wrath from Almighty God. The wrath that, that will never be extinguished because it's infinite sin against the infinite God. Again, as we think about this, we should really be... be be driven to evangelism. The majority of the people that, that you see walking on the street or in the mall or, or at work or, or at the bank, at the, at, at the barber shop, they're all headed for this. May God help us to see the reality of coming judgment and may it cause us to not be content to let anybody we know to go to the wrath of God without at least hearing from our lips the gospel of Jesus Christ.
And, and part of Paul's purpose in this passage is evangelistic. Right? The unbelievers who were, still, who were reading this were alive still. It wasn't too late for them. They still had the opportunity to, to repent and turn to Christ. And so part of Paul's purpose in, in, in showing that the badness again of the bad news is to drive unbelievers towards the gospel, to drive unbelievers towards Christ. That they too might, might receive his forgiveness. Forgiveness in him for all their sins. Next in verse 9, continuing that the central part of this passage, all who do evil will receive tribulation. Again, the verse says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so now Paul is, is pairing the, the wrath and fury of God with tribulation and distress from God. And all of this, the wrath and the fury and the tribulation and the distress is the righteous judgment of the holy God and it is the, the righteous reward from God for the evil works of the unbeliever. And now the emphasis here is on all, to every human being, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Remember in 1.16, Paul spoke of the priority of the Jew in the blessings of the gospel. He said, the power, he said the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We'll see this again in verse 10. It is now the, the righteous, it is now the, the, the wrath of God upon the Jew first and also the Greek. There was a priority for the Jew in salvation and now he's saying there's a priority for the Jew in damnation. In chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, Paul will, will speak of the, the privileges of the Jews. They are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And to them belong the patriarchs. And from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. The superlative blessings of the Jewish people. But because of those privileges, there is greater responsibility. He, uh, Amos 3.2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Greater privilege means greater accountability. Again, the, the priority of the Jew is in salvation, but also in damnation. But as we look at this now in the, in the 21st century, I think we can say that the tables have turned. Now this is still, at the, at the final judgment of God, this is still going to be the case. There's still priority for the, the, the Jews in judgment and the priorities, priority on the Jews in, in glory. We'll see that in a moment too. But at this present time, we in the, the visible church are the privileged ones. We are the ones who have privilege. And I say visible church because this includes not just true Christians, but, but all who, who claim Christ. Many in the visible church look more like the world than they do Christ. Many, in the, in, many who are part of the visible church are goats, not sheep. And again, we all look like the world sometimes. But again, the issue here is, are you truly seeking Christ? 
But either way, in the visible church, you have great privilege. You have Christian friends. You, you have pastors, not only the, the pastors in this church, but, but you have many godly men who are pastors in, in other churches who you can just, in a, in a moment, you can, you can have the, the sum of, of, of Christian knowledge at your fingertips. I have on my computer a, a whole library of wonderful, God-glorifying books You have a Bible. Most of us have many Bibles. You have great privilege. For myself as a pastor, I have the great privilege of studying God's Word. I, I get, to, I, I get to, to, to spend hours and hours studying God's Word. It's a luxury that, that, and a privilege that many of you don't have. And I have the great privilege of, of when, I, when I meet with you, I I see God's work in your lives. I, I hear the testimony of, of what God is doing. And, and I get encouraged. I get built up by you. We have great privilege. But as Sinclair Ferguson warns, you are not judged on the basis of having the privileges, but on the basis of what you've done with those privileges. Many who have these privileges have spurned these privileges. They've been apathetic. Again, this can be all of us at some times. But, but for the unbeliever, those privileges are of no avail. They only add to their condemnation. The writer of Hebrews speaks of these things in Hebrews 6, 4, and 5. Those who have once been enlightened, those who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. They will eventually fall away. It's impossible for them to be restored again to repentance because they're crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. These are, these are people who have, have enjoyed the, the, the blessings of, of being part of the visible church, of hearing God's Word, of, of having Christian friends who reminded them of God's Word, of, of having Christians praying for them. But they show the reality in, in walking away. And so the judgment of God, the wrath of God will come on all who do evil. They'll receive tribulation from God's hand. But in verse 10, now Paul goes back here to speak again of the believer. All who do good will receive glory. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. They will receive what they sought. Right? Paul's already said that they're going to receive, they were seeking eternal life and they receive, receive eternal life. Now he says they receive glory and honor. Again, they receive the glory of God and the honor of God from God and it redounds to the glory of God and the honor of God. And he adds in a bonus. He says they also receive peace. And here we experience the peace of God now, but he's speaking here ultimately of eschatological peace, eternal peace with God through Jesus Christ for all eternity. He 
And so believer, on that day, you will receive glory from God. The great and the glorious God will glorify you and me. My heart has, has been warned, warmed many, many times by 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Each one will receive his commendation from God. Now I know that for many of us with sensitive consciences, myself included at times, we, we think we'll receive the condemnation from God. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, who are in Christ Jesus. We will receive commendation from God. Jew first and also Gentile will receive commendation from God. And, and here, I think that this, this really speaks to, to the, the rampant anti-Semitism that we see. Again, it's rising up in the world. Just, it's, it's shocking the amount of anti-Semitism that is, 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 especially on college campuses, but it's, it's all over the place. In the media, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Paul says here, quoting John Murray, that the Jew will have priority in the bestowal of glory itself. We all will receive glory from God, but it's to the Jew first. This is the gospel, is the salvation of God for a Jew first. Again, this is for Jew and for Greek. Paul here is, is showing the, the key point of the, the unity of Jew and Gentile in the gospel. This is Paul's key point in, in all of Romans. That together, Jew and Gentile will receive the glory of Almighty God. Again from Calvin. There's a twofold acceptation of men before God. The first when he chooses and calls us from nothing through his gratuitous goodness. The second when after having regenerated us, he confers on us gifts and shows favor to the image of his son which he recognizes in us. So God accepts you in two ways. When he chooses you, when he elects you, not because of, of anything good in you or any good that you will do, but because of his sovereign grace. And second, and that he now as the recipient of that grace, he, sh he showers upon you his great and glorious gifts because you're in Christ. And he, sees, he sees Christ in you, received by faith. And you, so you receive part of the blessing that belongs to Christ. So then finally, all of this shows from verse 11 that God shows no partiality. This word partiality, it's an idiom. It literally means to accept a face. God is impartial in the judgment of Jew and Gentile. He's, an impar he's impartial in his, in his judgment 
on unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles, and he's impartial in his judgment on believing Jews and believing Gentiles. God has silenced the Gentiles who claimed ignorance as a defense. He silences the Jews, those who claim privilege in knowing the law. There is no defense. There is no room for boasting before Almighty God. We saw this in Acts chapter 10, 34. In Peter's sermon, he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Remember, this was an epiphany for Peter, who prior to this point had believed that the, the Gentiles were the ones who could not be saved. But then when the, the, when the Lord had appeared to him and, and lowered the, the sheet with the, the unclean animals and said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. God said to him, do not call common what I have made clean. And then at that moment, messengers from Cornelius were coming to Peter. And St. Cornelius, a Gentile, he's, he wants you to come to him. And so Peter came and he, in his sermon at the house of Cornelius, he finally understood that God shows no partiality. Brothers and sisters, may we recognize the fact that God shows no partiality. He does not Look at, at us for our, our heritage. God doesn't care about your last name. God doesn't care about the color of your skin or your accent. He cares about the fact that you have placed your faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this, God is glorified. In this, God's, God's lack of partiality is perfectly impart, the perfectly impartial nature by which he judges is revealed. You know, we tend to, to categorize ourselves as, as where we are in the, the totem pole, the pecking order of, uh, in, in whatever human way we do it. Even in, in ways we look at, say, at other Christians who say, well, I'm, I'm more spiritual, I'm more godly, I'm more sanctified than that person. Maybe not so much as that person. But hey, I'm better than them. But praise God that God doesn't do that. That all of us equally have an equal share in Christ. There is no hierarchy in the kingdom of Christ except for the hierarchy that exists with the triune God and the rest of us. It's been said that the, 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 land, the, the ground before the cross is level ground. There is no partiality between, with God and there ought not to be any partiality with us. But as we close here, we need to seek the Lord and say, what do, what do our works, what do your works say about you? What do your works say about you? Are you those among those that God is, has declared righteous? And you're showing that by the way you live your life? Or are you among those who have, are still rejecting Christ, maybe even pretending at Christianity? Well, it's just a sham. 
You know, there was a young man who was, was actually the first person I baptized. He became completely apostate. And he left the church. And then he came to meet me a few years ago, just right around the beginning of COVID. And he, he said to me, it was all a lie. And I knew it. It was a show. Now, sometimes people deceive themselves. But in this particular case, he, he knew what he was doing. But again, what do your works say about you? We need to be careful here because there are some among us who have, have very sensitive consciences and are going to be in a melancholy way, just, just turned inwards and looking at themselves. And the enemy is going to use a statement like that and, and heap accusation upon your head. Solution is, is not to look at yourself. Ultimately, it's to look to Christ. Yes, see your weakness. See your failing, but, but let that drive you to the cross. I think those who are in, in more danger are those who have seared consciences. Those who become so hardened by the deceitfulness of sin that they, they don't even feel guilty about it anymore. And if that's you, the solution is still the same. It's go to the cross. It, it's not make a resolution to, to change your behavior. It's, it's saying, no, I've got no righteousness of my own. I need Christ. Give me Christ. God knows the reality. He will judge you according to truth. And the ultimate truth by which God will judge you is the truth of the gospel, which is yours if you're trusting in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for the gospel. We recognize that, that none of us could do anything to save ourselves. Lord, we sin every day. But Lord Jesus, our eyes are fixed on you. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, we are trusting in you. Yes, we falter at times. Yes, we, we stumble at times. We stray. Lord, we are at times unfaithful, but Lord Jesus, you are the faithful Son of God. You perfectly loved your heavenly Father with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and perfectly loved your neighbor as yourself for your entire incarnation. And you are continuing to do this now as you are dwelling bodily in heaven. Lord, we praise you for who you are and for the salvation that we have in you. And Lord, for any who are here this morning who are not trusting in Christ, any that are, are still dead in their trespasses and sins, we, we pray that, that the, the, the terror of your wrath will cause them to flee to Christ from the wrath to come. Lord, may you help all of us to preach the gospel to ourselves as the only solution. 
the only way that we could possibly be forgiven by you, the just judge. We thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.